Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. So, another episode. Make sure you like, share, comment, subscribe, all that good stuff. Check out uh, eigenbros.com, eigenbros on Instagram, eigenbros on Twitter. Twitter? Mm-hmm. I, too. I always get hung up on that. I yeah, get two on TikTok. Mm-hmm. Check out uh, Patreon. Mm-hmm. Oh, first off, thank you, patrons. Thank you. I'm getting yeah. so, uh, <laughs> so ahead of myself. We're so ready to talk yeah, about I'm this. I'm so scripted now. <laughs> but no, thank you, patrons. We love you guys Seriously. as always. We appreciate you. We probably should do something with the Patreon, Patreon members we again. Probably do another hangout soon. Yeah, something like cool. that. Yeah, if you guys got any suggestions, let us know. Uh, and if you guys want to become a Patreon, subscriber check out patreon.com slash eigenbros mm-hmm. me and Juan do a 30 minute audio podcast there every week and uh, we talk about random stuff all the time and uh, you also get discord access so you can talk about us or whatever you want to do mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're talking we're, to us talk to us exactly most of the patrons are they love us so they talk to yeah. us yeah yeah we still have yet to get anybody who wants to pay to talk about us yeah <laughs> soon yeah we're hoping yeah. when we get it more patreon members that will yeah. happen we want we let's see if we can get our first hater. Right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, let's get let's get down to business. The brass yes. tacks. Mm-hmm. Computational physics. Right. Right. Woo. An interesting one. Yeah. Yeah. Real um, interesting one. Yeah, it is because uh, it's a it's a burgeoning field. Um, you hear about it in um, in a lot of spaces. I mean realistically how would you say when did you first hear about comp physics so i actually kind of already conceived of it before Mm -hmm. i really knew it was a field because it seems obvious in some sense right if you really just think Mm -hmm. you're like computers are getting better and better therefore there's probably got to be computational physics Mm -hmm. although in my school there was never really that much of a formalized version of it but I knew someone had to, it has to exist, right? Um, but the actual official time I ever heard of it probably was maybe middle of undergraduate. Mm-hmm. You know, second semester maybe. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, same here. I kind of heard about it my second semester of college for physics, my physics program, just because they were like, oh yeah, we use computational methods and and it, you know we'll talk about the most famous one, Monte Carlo. Um, I heard some student that was working with Monte Carlo simulations, and I was like, "What the hell? The Monte yeah. Carlo—that's a car." <laughs> you know? At a, a city, I think it was actually named after a city. Oh, interesting. Because yeah. uh, the, I think someone mentioned that it was like a big um, gambling city. <laughs> Therefore, Monte Carlo methods probabilistic Interesting. gambling city probably not a coincidence that's what we call in the business a teaser <laughs> so be ready for that right uh <clears throat> but anyway like how do we define computational physics so yes let's uh some people say or according to this university here i forget the name of it what is computational physics it's apsu.edu apsu well unfortunately i don't it doesn't zoom out uh clarksville Whoever's from APSU, your webpage is Austin something. Austin P A. Your webpage is broken. <laughs> um, so computational physics is the study of scientific problems using computational methods. It combines computer science, physics, applied math to develop scientific solutions to complex problems. It complements the areas of theory and experimentation in traditional scientific investigation. Um, typically they're used in molecular modeling, electronic circuit design, protein folding, atmospheric science, 
aerodynamic design and testing, and material science, to name a few. So in, in a nutshell, it helps you basically tackle these realistic problems in practically every field. Um, it, it's, so yeah, it's an intersectional field of physics and engineering and science, or maybe even math, where yep. like you kind of just try to fit all and these things science, into real life, right, and into real life models. Right. Yeah. And of course, another big part of that is nu- using numerical methods many times. So that's... Can you expand on that, numerical methods? So numerical methods or numerical analysis is a branch of mathematics that has to do with computation. And typically it's, uh, you know, it's using things like recursion and iterative processes, mm-hmm. um, you know, loops, you know, these kind of things to calculate large amounts of data or, you know, fit, um, fit data or manipulate data in some type of way. And numerical analysis is a really useful branch of mathematics and for physicists, I think, especially people who are in computational physics. Um, and you'll learn things like, uh, special, special techniques. I think there's one called, so it's like integration techniques, mm-hmm. which I think they refer to as uh, quadrature or something along those lines. You might have to look that up. Um, and, um, curve yeah. fitting quadrature. Well, integration techniques. Yeah. There's, uh, yeah, there's a name for it that they give it for when it's specifically numerical analysis. It's mm-hmm. like quadrature or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure why a different name. <clears throat> Maybe distinguish it as the computational version. But um, yeah, there's many different techniques out there for things that, you know, when you're trying to solve functions or, you know, equations or whatnot, when there's, when the analytical methods fail, either because the you know, equations or whatever you're trying to solve are just untenable. They can't be solved analytically easily. Or it's just that um, maybe it's impossible to even solve it analytical, uh, you know, find analytical solutions. Or you're just taking raw data and you need to, you know, organize it in some fashion and you use computational methods there. So, I mean, it's very useful for real-life applications. Yeah. Like they... Um, the- According to the Wikipedia, the methods and algorithms, this kind of goes a little bit with what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Root finding, system of solving system of linear equations, solving ordinary differential equations, solving integration problems, uh, partial differential equations, and solving matrix eigenvalue problems. That's pretty much the main big, big areas for numerical methods, actually, I think. It's it's one of those maths that's very useful for physics. There's like the three maths that I wish I took as a physicist that I didn't take. Was it? One of them is numerical analysis. The other one is complex analysis. And then the last one is group theory. Yeah. Or, or groups. So you nailed the fucking... Yeah. Those, those, are the, those are the maths that are kind of usually off the standard track for physicists. And if you can somehow get a chance to take those things without having to waste extra time, because they're not super relevant and necessary, because you'll do it if you're, with your research anyway, depending on what you do. If you need it, yeah. Yeah, if you need it. Um, but those would those are like the ones that physics have and have a little bit of a, a, a fear of missing out, a little FOMO, <laughs> if you didn't get to take those. Yeah, because they're high level. That, that kind of separates you from the, the, uh, the stock the uh, the regular people who go through the traditional route, it just makes you stand out because it gives you a wider picture of physics. Right. 
yeah. and it's a, it's incredibly useful a lot of times. Like you'll you'll probably find some use for it at some point, and yeah. it'll just give you a little bit slight, maybe even a slight advantage. But slight edge. It is not mandatory. You will know a little bit of men, numerical techniques on the standard track. You will know a little bit of complex analysis, yeah. and you also know a little bit of group theory stuff. Uh, but it's it's a touch and go for all those. Right. I, and I would say the people who se- the people that separate themselves learning these things are typically the quote unquote geniuses or professors that mm. know this stuff where it's like, damn, you guys put in the work to learn to learn this ancillary stuff that I mean, it doesn't really matter. Like Terrence is saying, mm. most schools are probably not going to they're not going to tell you to do it because it's these classes are reserved for theory usually. Right. But they're just out of the scope of what you typically right. need in the core track. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. But numerical analysis, if you could get a chance to take it, incredibly useful, especially Do for it. the modern age of computers. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and and so you might be asking yourself, why the hell do I care about finding roots or solving system <laughs> of linear equations right. or all that stuff? Um, and, I mean, we've been doing math for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So finding roots or you know, kind of going back to, uh, what did you say? Well, algebra. Right. The <laughs> olden days of like, you know, parabolas and quadratic equations. <laughs> right, right, right. You might be asking yourself, why the hell would I even care about solving these things? Because like Terrence is saying, you might have some, typically, you know, the job of a physicist or an engineer or even a computational engineer, physics modeling person, your job is to, model systems or model like data sets right to see any behavior that can be how would you say uh, well i guess you can extrapolate yes yeah, some kind of yeah exactly you can characterize some type of behavior extrapolate some type of information from data sets mm-hmm. i mean it's incredibly useful right you can see trends especially in our era of big data i mean if you're mm-hmm. looking for a job like I mean, yeah. numerical analysis and data analysis is like giant this day and age. Yeah. So if you can somehow make sense of data, like that's one of the big thing that people are looking for in jobs now is making sense of data because, you know, you know that companies like Google and all these people are great at collecting the data, but really it takes another level to analyze that data. You know, numerical techniques will help you do that. So, I mean, that's why the scope is so huge. I mean, it's in physics, it's in everything. Yeah. Like finding roots, for instance, is like you can you can do so much with that data. It tells you in physics, we use it a lot just because, you know, if you're plotting, say, pressure versus um, temperature, I, I don't know, temperature. Yeah. You can see, you know, when you set the pressure to zero, you see you can kind of see where I think that's one of the most famous problems where you get to see zero. What is it? Um, absolute zero or something. OK. Right. I forget. It pressure. definitely it definitely rings a bell, but I don't remember. Right, we have this in one of our la- in our physics labs. You'll you'll probably learn this stuff, and yeah. I'll probably put up a little picture here. But <clears throat> one of the most famous examples of this is how they extrapolated um, the zero Kelvin because they saw the y-intercept. If they saw it carry out, it goes to like negative two hundred and what is it seventy three. Seventy-three point fifteen something. or something. It doesn't have to be exact. This is an appro- <laughs> this is an approximation, folks. Yeah. <laughs> but essentially, these kinds of things are breakthroughs, right? There's like, oh, absolute zeros is this. You know, if we keep following this temperature, that means something weird happens there. Mm. 
So roots, root finding is like kind of critical in this, um, can lead to critical insights. Insights. Yeah. 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 That's a good example. I mean, system of linear equations, the other, that, that's a good thing to master or solve just because, you know, the typical system of linear equations is like, um, it's kind of like the the sort of baby step to matrix uh, stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, I get value problems, as mentioned in the wiki, is a huge one. Like, think of, like, quantum mechanics. And, you know, mm. when you have systems of particles with yeah. lots of degrees of freedom, like, it helps to have a mat- to put those things in matrices and then solve those with eigenvalue solvers and things to find you know, some useful quantities that you can actually manipulate there. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, there's many, many things you can do. Yeah, super huge. And last but not least, integration and differential equations. Those yeah. uh, differential equations are like the back, or this is calculus, it's the backbone of our modern and, and analytical stuff. Right, right. right. I mean, integrations area, how to, how to like look at, how to interpret areas under a curve and then, Integrals are like how to look at data at a precise point, you know. Well, integrals are determining area under a curve. Right. Okay. But, but I'm saying derivatives. Did I say integrals? My yeah, bad. you got it reversed, I think. Yeah. <laughs> derivatives are, are looking at data at a certain point. Um, okay. Uh, and, and, the change, or instantaneous, the rate of change. Right. Yeah. The instantaneous rate of change yes. at a certain value. So it, it tells you a lot. You know, this is the backbone of like econ- e- e- modern economics, you know, econometrics or whatever. <clears throat> it's very, very useful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you're a computational physics person, you will, you have all of these tools that humanity has built for analysis. Yeah. Um, and I mean, once you go through the gambit, you'll be able to be like, okay, I can, uh, I can pretty much do anything. Right. Yeah. And I guess to just add on to that is that the the a lot of these things can be solved analytically and we'll do these things analytically in, in physics class and whatnot but mm-hmm. one of the big separators here is that you can work with large data a lot of times thank you easier yeah. with computational physics methods so when you got a matrix that has you know five thousand <laughs> yeah. you know five thousand by thousand five thousand matrix then that becomes really uh, not the funnest thing to solve by hand, I say. <laughs> yeah, it's not a simple three by three matrix where it's, yeah. you just do a couple, a couple uh, algorithms and then you're done. <clears throat> yeah. So. so, well, let's anyway. let's get into. Uh, I want to kind of talk about, you know, what what the the standard textbook stuff covers in a computational physics yeah of course so just to kind of give some people some insight um on what the hell it's about i'm looking at this book computational methods for physics by franklin at reed college they uh they talk about programming but you know they cover a lot of the stuff that we were just saying on the wiki ordinary differential equations root finding partial differential equations time dependent problems integration fourier transforms Harmonic oscillators. Fourier transforms is one I really wish I would have gotten to, honestly. Mm. What do you mean? Because, I mean, the discrete Fourier transform and the fast mm-hmm. Fourier transform, I didn't get to study them. I briefly glanced at them. Mm-hmm. But um, those are really useful, really useful things. I mean, that's like all modern, like uh, anything that has to do with waveforms. Mm. 
really cool stuff, but I didn't really get enough ch- time to explore it. Yeah, I don't really understand the uh, the theory because in, in physics, as you will find, you kind of like learn as you go. They Most physicists have a learn as you go problem. Yeah. They'll just say like, here's the thing, here's how to use it, go for it. Yeah, yeah. But you don't really know, like the, especially for Fourier transforms, you're kind of just given this like, you're said, you know, here's the variable that you want, here's how you transform it. You you have this old variable, boom! You mm-hmm. plug this in, and this you get you get the variable you want out, and you're like, what the hell? <laughs> well, we kind of get a little bit of insight with the mm-hmm. Fourier series, Expand, because the Fourier series kind of is how you can get to the Fourier transform, mm-hmm. because you see that uh, any kind of wave can be decomposed into a bunch of sines and cosines, mm-hmm. and then you realize that the um, that the uh, coefficients, I believe, of those waves. Uh, hold on. Let me try to think exactly before I mess up. No, the coefficients I think of those waves <clears throat> have some tie to the Fourier transform because it uses the orthogonality condition of trigonometric functions ah. to either get you a zero or a one answer to make the math clean. And that's where oh, you invoke the integral. Interesting. And I think that has something to do with the Fourier transform. But that's all I'm going to say for now. I'm putting an asterisk <laughs> on that because I forget now and I didn't go through yeah. it myself. Yeah. To re. This is a. But yeah. this is a lucid memory fact yeah. <laughs> in your in your mind. Yeah, it's a floating memory that I did not even look up or corroborate. <laughs> so it could be kind of wrong, but so I know it's, I think it's mostly right. Accurate. I would say. Mostly accurate. We'll go ahead and put a picture on here for the folks watching. <laughs> but listeners, you can verify this yourself. But in, in any in any sense, Fourier transforms are kind of a funny thing. But they're an important analytical tool, as Terrence is saying. Yeah. And uh, harmonic oscillators, not surprised that it's on here. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the harmonic oscillator will make its way into anything. <laughs> and for those of you that don't know, and you, maybe, you're, <clears throat> maybe you're a student and you're like, what is this? Why are you guys laughing? Well, harmonic oscillators are memed in physics yeah. because, <laughs> well, they show up everywhere. Everything is a, everything is a harmonic oscillator. Everything, you know, most, and, and that is to say that a lot of things in nature are periodic in motion. Right. So, and the only derivative that's equal to its integral is e to the x which can always be decomposed in the sines and cosines, which are essentially periodically oscillating motions. So mm. the harmonic oscillator is everywhere. Mm. E to the X, the exponential Euler's constant to the X is in like everything in physics yeah. and math. Yeah. So there you go. So it's going to be appearing everywhere and you're probably going to be dealing a lot with it, yeah. <clears throat> especially with nat- natural data sets. I don't know how much of that is iterative in like, uh, social problems or in socio like human things like mm-hmm. economics or data modeling of human behavior. I don't know how much of that is, is oscillatory, but um, maybe if you're trying to model, like let's say you're an app company, let's say a company in uh, Silicon Valley is like, we want to make a targeted ad. We want to find the right algorithms. So where people in Texas are hungry so that we can send them the right, ads when they're hungry okay (laughs) and we know humans follow a circadian rhythm (laughs) so they might look they might look you to follow some um some personalized yeah uh algorithm that's sort of you know periodic and stuff right right right? of course humans are not that simple usually so i doubt it but 
I see where you're going. Right, but you use <laughs> approximations to kind of get you there. You can kind mm. of say, well, like the phone, this person's phone says that they woke up at 2 p.m. Right. So most people eat within maybe an hour or two of waking up. Right, right. So it's like, okay, all right. <laughs> anyway, that's kind of gives – you can kind of model harmonic behavior or periodic behavior with given the techniques. Anyway, then we have matrix inversion. Uh, matrix inversion is kind of a funny one. I don't know why they would include that in there. Well, these are all like t analytical techniques that I know of, but I don't know how the computational part steps in with these ones. Well, matrix inversion is important, I would say, because you need to do you need to take the inverse of a matrix to get the determinant, which is one of the most important yeah. things. Um, yeah, determinant is huge. Yeah. Because mathematics is determined a lot of times by your determinant either equaling zero or not equaling zero a lot mm -hmm. of times. Equaling zero means that there is no inversion or the matrix is not invertible mm -hmm. a lot of times. Yeah, I'm surprised you remember that. I didn't remember. <laughs> well, just because you know that the two by two form is like AD minus BC, and if that's right. zero, it's one over zero, which is in, in true, true form. True. So it's a hack kind of. But yeah. um, oh right, it looks as if your data set is even something that you can it, work yeah, it's even something you could do. Yeah. And the determinant is basically like this. Um, it can higher be higher level version of the volume in some sense, right? Gotcha. You're finding like the net volume of something on some kind of space. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, and it's used in a lot of in a lot of applications, right? Has a lot of utility. Yeah. Um, it's sometimes used to. Is it? I can't remember if it's used to normalize values. Is it? Uh, I don't know. Like I can't scaling. Think of right now, I'm trying to remember if something's coming to me about scaling with determinants, but who knows? I don't know. But the thing is, with the matrix version, I think the computational part comes in with that. Is there's computational techniques that you can use to solve the uh, inverted, or you can solve the invertible parts of the entries or elements of the matrix using computational tools. Mm -hmm. I think, I think. Yeah, and there's also, well, okay, actually I'm thinking about how to make something Hermitian, because remember, yeah. how to make a, a matrix, if it's unitary, it, you're allowed to do certain operations on it. Yeah, that's a, yeah. I think that's what they call a symmetric matrix, I want to say. Yeah. I'm probably. not sure. Probably. I know symmetric matrix is, the matrix is equal to its transpose. Right. Which is transpose is inverse. No. No? Transpose is not inverse. Transpose is oh, just yes. where the rows and columns are flipped. Gotcha. Right? Yeah. And then the stronger version of that would be her mission where the, where the rows and the columns are flipped plus the the complex conjugate is taken. Mm -hmm. So it's a stronger version of symmetric. Gotcha. Uh, but I guess, I think a Hermitian matrix is a symmetric matrix as well, mm -hmm. I want to say. Well, essentially, yeah, we, we use a lot of these techniques to help us solve solve these problems. We do it a lot in physics, and this is probably what makes computational physics so... so um, yeah, in case you appealing. can't tell, this math... this podcast is going to be kind of a math a math conceptually math heavy episode right, so right, right. hopefully it's not tuning out too many people but i'm sure it will inevitably because <laughs> math always tunes out people um but but it's an interesting subject for sure it is it is so we have other things that the book covers eigenvalue problem which we talked about iterative methods um iterative methods are kind of a funny one mm -hmm. um i think so i i kind of looked into it if i remember correctly it talks about um, basically like perturbations mm -hmm. or like adiabatic approaches to okay. things. And in physics, we kind of do this thing where, 
what we say it's adiabatically expanded where if I rem- like I don't know if I remember this correctly but is when a change occurring within a system as a result of transfer of energy to or from the system in the form of work so, oh, so no I'm heat is transferred so oh, okay so so no heat is transferred so yes there that does mean there's it has something to do with the loss of energy because heat has to do with the loss of energy right or am I fucking that up or is it just saying that heat isn't transferred? I don't get yeah, it. Yeah, no heat is transferred. It says, a rat, like for example, a rapid expansion or contraction of a gas is nearly adiabatic. Because no heat is transferred to the environment. I guess so, yeah. Okay, so I think it is kind of what I was thinking. I'm thinking of it in a thermodynamics content mm-hmm. context. But even that's a little bit... So I butchered it. I'm going to have to cut that out. <laughs> I'm, I'm about to insert some... Uh, I was thinking about something else. Yeah. Um, but we use, we do use adiabatic methods to kind of... Physicists... It's funny because physicists do learn a lot of these weird little ancillary... Math. Math tricks. Concepts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but iterative methods is a whole branch of like um, numerical methods essentially to help, kind of help you solve an approximation. Sure. Or approximation And methods. I mean the term iterate... It says it all in the name, really, yeah. right? Because it's like you're using for loops or while loops or something like that to mm-hmm. iterate a process to where you might converge on some value or something like that. Mm-hmm. Next one is minimization. I have no clue what that is. Oh, that's just like, you know, <clears throat> minimizing a function. You know, think about it like taking oh, the derivative yeah. and setting it equal to zero. That's a minimization. True. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. You're right. That's more of an optimization thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, very useful, especially with uh, you're trying to solve systems with, uh, whatchamacallit? Um, like if you're trying to model aerodynamic stuff, mm-hmm. let's say you want to use the right amount of material or the optimal type of material mm-hmm. for the object. Mm-hmm. We did this problem in calculus one time that I remember. It was like you have, you have an aluminum can and here's the function. Okay. Approximating the aluminum can. What is the minimal amount of aluminum that you need? Um, and it's like you see that <clears throat> companies in the 50s used, a bunch, used to use a bunch of aluminum, but then mm. through calculus you can come to the same conclusion of why modern cans are as thin as they are with the amount of aluminum they have. Right, right. Kind of insane, but yeah, they, they teach you this right. um, minimization most, problem. Most companies that have been around for a long time have done plenty of optimization or minimization problems mm-hmm. because they're always trying to save a dollar, right? Yeah. Everything's about the bottom line, so they're going to hire anyone to help them save money somehow. Yeah. So there you go. Number 13, chaos. Chaos. Um, chaos is, of course, classic differential equations, you know. Um, and I guess the numerical part would be like modeling, I guess, chaotic systems. Chaotic systems are weird because in in computational methods, you use, you know, you typically go to like uh, what some physicists would call phase space mm. because you get to see patterns. Uh, in phase space, it's a little bit easier to see see behavior that's periodic. And that would make more sense when you start studying it. And I don't want to get too in the weeds for, yeah, for yeah. this one particular thing. But, um, but... There is a way to solve prob or systems that are chaotic, and it's a whole field in itself. It, I mean, this covers it in a chapter. And I imagine but. that chaotic systems might get really annoying when it comes to the actual um, com- computational cost. Right. So there's a terminology that 
computer scientists use a big no, big O notation, mm-hmm. where some things will be polynomial time, have a polynomial time cost. Some things will have an exponential time cost. Some things might have a logarithmic time cost. Logarithmic would be the ideally the one that you want. Mm-hmm. And then the worst one would usually be the exponential or worse. Mm-hmm. Um, if there is worse, I don't know. But um, <laughs> uh, so chaos, I'd imagine, probably has some things where it's like finding the most computationally time-reduced uh, algorithms to model chaotic systems that might be untenable because they probably have some crazy... Uh, uh, computational cost once the simulation runs for too long. Yeah, a good example of chaos is like turbulent flow, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and the time cost on that, I'm sure, probably gets crazy. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure, but this is my thoughts on it. I haven't looked at this for the podcast, but that's mm-hmm. probably what I would expect. Yeah, and turbulent flow is a big problem. Like, tur- for okay, turbulent flow is is another of these wave kind of dynamics where it's like a chaotic thing, mm-hmm. like usually a multivariable system. Like for instance, the Earth's atmosphere. You know, you can kind of have. You you have like maybe wind currents that that clash and you create like a flow, mm-hmm. that's just like Terence is saying, it becomes untenable. You, yeah, you if you're trying really... to model that, if you're trying to model that flow. It gets really bad after like <laughs> yeah. a certain amount of time to where it just becomes the the, the computer can't handle that many degrees of freedom. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. So so you have to generalize or you have to see overall patterns of motion. Right. Which is where phase space comes in. You look at instead of individual particles flowing, you see the momentum. You see a, a, an aggregate sometimes mm-hmm. of of the system to take an average. And, and I'm sure that a lot of like the computer graphics people and uh, companies that produce like game physics or movie physics, I'm sure they have gotten really good algorithms down for modeling some chaotic systems because mm-hmm. you'll see in movies nowadays things like flowing hair and dresses or like, you know, water and fire and all these things are chaotic systems. Yeah. I've seen a lot of the methods that they do are more, like I was saying, like you take averages. Mm-hmm. Um but I mean, I'm sure they've gotten, like you're saying, so much better than yeah. when we last checked. Um, insane. Like nowadays, they have real. This might be an aside, but <clears throat> nowadays they have um, what's called ray tracing. Yeah, Are you yeah. familiar with this? Yeah. Yeah, where before we used to treat, you know, we have audio ray tracing, and then we also have uh, um, photon ray tracing. So we look at how light behaves when it interacts within it when it interacts with matter and i mean it's it's intrinsically chaotic because when light reflects off a material you know it's we say it's unidirectional like a lot of the light kind of just spreads you mean multi-directional multi-directional sorry um we kind of see how the light typically has a cone or something but in ray tracing it does like the real it does the physical problem yeah. Once it, when time. it interacts, yeah, when right. it interacts with the material, which is... But that's computationally massively intensive unless you've got the right systems and the right equations. And, and they the right have a right... They, I think the thing is they, they were, they've... The computational physics modeling has gotten... Um, the algorithm has gotten really good where you spend the most time processing when it interacts mm-hmm. locally. 
and then boom, you you have your output. Right. It's really interesting stuff. And yeah, I guess this this also shows for the audience out there. You know, if you're trying to get into gaming, but you get a physics background, I mean, this is another avenue there. Yeah. You know, because they need computational physicists. Like I'll see on applications sometimes, people will be like a good understanding of physics for game development. Yeah. Crazy. And that's Me why. Too. That's 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 one of the areas. <clears throat> Anyway. Anyway, chaos. Finally, chaos. One more thing about chaos. Yeah. The chaos emeralds from <laughs> from Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah, Doctor Robotnik, <laughs> an expert in chaos. <laughs> I guess this is doctorate, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, but lastly, I don't know. I, I kind of want to hit on this real quick. Neural networks yeah. is part of it, but that's more of like a new thing, right? Yeah. And it's very interdisciplinary, right? I don't even know what, like, it's called neural networks, but I don't really know what field that even belongs to, really. Yeah. <laughs> because everyone's co-opted it at this point. <laughs> Physicists, computer scientists, neuroscientists, mm-hmm. it's everywhere, right? Right. I, and that's the thing. I don't know where neural networks would ever fit into physics modeling. Oh, I'm sure they will. They do. Because the neural networks is basically like, um, well, do you know what I mean? Like, I'm, it sure, seem... I'm sure if you were creative enough or clever enough, you could come up with something. I just can't think of anything right now. But it's just one of those fields that seems like it can be in anything. Like, well, to me, it's not one of those immediately obvious ones like chaos and minimization and all those other ones we've talked about. Yeah, I think because it's just too new. We haven't right. been exposed to it enough. Yeah. But I think eventually people will start integrating neural networks into physics applications. Because, I mean, what? Well, let me think. I could probably think You're of trying something. to see the interconnectedness of stuff? I don't know. I mean, because the neural networks is like it takes weights of... It takes the weights of these different inputs and then outputs a final answer. Mm-hmm. And I can just see that being useful when it comes to like data acquisition and experiments or something. There's got to be something. I don't know. I just can't. Yeah, I mean, this says here it says that coupled nonlinear sets of ordinary differential equations uh, that describe most physical processes do not always have well-behaved numerical solutions. There's a physical behavior. In addition, there's certain physical behavior that cannot be or is rendered into well-defined deterministic ordinary differential equations. Whatever the source, there are some problems where we have a large amount of data but no good rule for generating output from input. Um, and they give an example. Suppose we have an electromagnetic signal that is supposed to propagate through space to an antenna on the ground. Um, but as the signal enters the Earth's atmosphere, things happen. The signal is scattered by the atmosphere, and the properties of the air that govern the scattering change as the light makes its way to the, from the antenna to the Earth. Now there's nothing physically obscure about this process. Um, but yet you can imagine that the particular model of the atmosphere plays a large role and taking us from the observed signal to the properties of the source. Um, and it says that we could sidestep the model-dependent portion of the problem and simply estimate the signal given the measurement by comparing with previously observed data. Interesting. I guess so, just making more accurate models. And that's yeah, kind of so where you... we go with computers, right? Mm-hmm. Just trying to get them closer and closer to how real, real um, life does it, right? Right. Because so, real life is chaotic and turbulent and all that. So it's like we're moving away from these really beautiful analytical f- models 
like yeah. from principle from first principles or something. Right, yeah. right. Like those are great and, and mm-hmm. awesome because they show you the ideal state, but in real life you start to get real powerful once you can deal with all these chaotic turbulent systems in the real world. Like oh. think of like SpaceX. Mm-hmm. One of the major reasons why it was impossible to have reusable rockets was because when the rocket's trying to re-land, mm-hmm. or it, it 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 has to be able to adjust in real time to the weird wind conditions and how it falls to the earth in real time. Yeah. So that's all computational. Interesting. So it has to have all these sensors really fine-tuned to taking in all this data and manipulating itself to be upright this whole time so it can actually land properly. Okay, so the neural networks kind of integrate integrate other data into the model yeah right? to make it stronger i guess right. and to have yeah. better real-time responsiveness so ne- neural networks and all these things are definitely going to be more and more useful as time goes on hmm. so okay i see i see the use utility now it's like refining it's for model refining right gotcha yeah well the last one is something called in this book it's called galerkin methods <laughs> and i mean it's it must be important if it's if it's given a whole chapter. Right. So I kind of want to talk about it briefly, but... Yeah, I can't uh, even speculate on that. Galarkin. Uh, <laughs> what the F is that? It says, uh, there's a new way to solve nonlinear, nonlinear initial value problems using a class of techniques called Galerkin methods. Mm. Um, it requires a set of grids. Um, and so... They're grid... Galerkin methods are grid-free... What the Should fuck? we even try to attempt this? We shouldn't even try to attempt this. Just, <laughs> yeah, just letting you guys know there's such a order. thing as Galerkin methods <laughs> out there. So maybe that – and that's chapter 15, so that must mean that it's really – you really got to be out there to be getting back into that. But so while I you're lurking, look up Galerkin. Galerkin, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was stupid. <laughs> that's good. That's good. I like it. Um, but I do want to spend right. time on, on the one thing that – is the most famous model or method out there. Right, let's get to it. The Monte Carlo method. While everybody's falling asleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you got the overview, but now here we want to we want to zoom in on Monte Carlo, right. the most famous one that you've probably have heard of time and time again. Right. So this is a famous algorithm or method in computational physics that basically uh, has this relationship between probability and area. It's very nice. It's one of the first computational physics methods I ever did in school. Um, I did it in a lab class uh, with one of my instructors um, in uh, in like probably a modern physics lab or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's really cool because it basically is pretty simple. You just have you just run some kind of simulation. We just randomly place dots on a particular area, and you do it within the space of a total area that's well known. And then once you've taken that out to a certain number of values, you can say, oh, what's my, what's the number of values that landed inside of the area I want to compute the area? Or what's the number of, of dots, let's say if you're looking at like a dartboard that landed inside the area I'm trying to compute versus the total area. And then you can set that equal to the probabilities. Mm-hmm. So the probability or the number of counts, I guess, that landed in over the total number of counts equal to the partial area over the total area. Right. And then you just manipulate that and you can solve what you want, which is typically the area that you're interested in computing. Right. Yeah. It's a super 
powerful method and there's a reason why we use it the most or probably it's the most famous i would say um you can see it i mean there's a little article you have here i think or maybe not but uh but maybe we can uh pull up this video of saying why why the, the monte carlo is is so important Simulations, a type of simulation that I really enjoy because it's a super simple concept and it still allows to solve incredibly complex problems. So after watching this video, you will know exactly what Monte Carlo simulations are and what types of problems you can solve with them. So what are Monte Carlo simulations? Well, the name Monte Carlo actually refers to the city in Monaco, which is known for its casinos and gambling. And in the context of simulations, Monte Carlo is basically used as a synonym for randomness, like the randomness in gambling. So Monte Carlo simulations are simulations evolving randomly. And this might seem counterintuitive at first, because how can something useful come out of a randomly evolving simulation? But we will see why randomness can be actually very useful in a simulation in just a moment. So let's take a look at the first example. In the simulation we have a sort of marble dropping device that moves around randomly above this rectangular table and drops marbles. And on the table there are two bowls, one with a square cross-section and one with a circular cross-section. And each of these bowls is placed on some sort of scale, which displays how many marbles are in each bowl at this time. And if we let the simulation evolve for a while and then divide the number of marbles in the circular bowl by the number of marbles in the square bowl, the result happens to be roughly pi. Without any advanced math knowledge, simply by randomly dropping marbles into two bowls, we can estimate pi. Okay, so let's unpack what happened in this simple example of a Monte Carlo simulation. Um, when we drop a marble in a uniformly random location, then the probability for this marble to end up in one of the bowls is proportional to the bowl's cross-section area. And if we repeat this process over and over again, then also the number of marbles ending up in this bowl will be proportional to the bowl's cross-section area. The area of the square bowl in this example is its edge length a squared and the area of the circular bowl is pi times a squared. And that's how we get pi as the fraction of the two areas and consequently as the fraction of marbles in each bowl. So in this example of a Monte Carlo simulation, we essentially determine an area by taking random samples. With each random sample, we probe whether this specific location is inside or outside of some area. And by taking enough samples, we get a good idea of how big an area is. Yeah. Cool. So it's not obvious, but there it is. You can relate probability to area. Nice and simple. Crazy, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that that's, and this is one problem. Right. There are other, there are other like, um, there are other problems that you can apply this to, to get, um, to, to get some kind of pattern out of it, right. To mm -hmm. see some kind of pattern out of, um, sub, you know, supposedly random behavior. Right. Yeah. Right. Do you have, do you know any, any other, any other examples that, uh, this would apply to? Do you, For Monte do you Carlo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember? Any? 
There's no. a famous problem that I'm thinking about, but I don't know if it. I don't know what kind of model fitting they did, mm. but I remember doing this problem <clears throat> in one of my physics classes where it was a. You have essentially a block that hits a big a big block that hits a small block, and it's like constantly oscillating. Oh, and it hits another wall. Yeah. Yes. Grant Sanderson actually did a video on this. Yeah. A whole video on it. It was really an in-depth one, too. And how this random harmonic oscillation motion... Produces pi. Yeah. 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 Another interesting... Grant Sanderson did a video. Check it out. I forget the name of it, but it's a very popular video of his. So you just type in uh, three blue run brown and um, and type in, I guess... uh, yeah, type in know. blocks, two blocks. Yeah, two uh, blocks. That probably would pie. bring it up. Yeah. Yeah. But um But that's yeah. another example of like supposedly random in, in in harmonic motion. I mean it's periodic, but it produces something very interesting. It's right. Like you get pi, why do you get pi out of it? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Grant's would, video does a really good job of explaining why as well. And you wouldn't see this unless you take a number of iterations. So mm-hmm. in my physics class, we ended up doing this kind of, we've developed an algorithm and like when you take it, you know, you see it approaching a finite value, the more iterations mm-hmm. you go. So right. like the higher the iterations, like maybe 10,000 or something, the closer you approach pi, you wouldn't be able to tell if you took maybe one or two, three, right. you know, uh, uh, how would you say finite calculations of this, this block hitting this other block. You right. don't see the repeating pattern until you take a number of uh, iterative steps. Yeah. Yeah. And it just shows, and of course, with probabilities, the more iterations you take, the more accurate you get. So your precision increases more and more. And that's actually kind of a cool method. Like, that's that's like, um, it's almost like, oh, how did they calculate these crazy quantities back in the days of like Greek times and all this stuff? Yeah. And we've got these amazing methods now. This is higher level mathematics and stuff, but you can actually get extremely accurate values of pi by doing these clever little tricks like the Monte Carlo method. Yeah. And you could probably calculate pi to some insane accuracy just by doing this enough times, you know? Yeah. There's also, I mean, it could have been, this is my conspiracy corner, but uh, <laughs> the Greek, what is that Greek uh, ancient uh, gear that they found? Oh, the Antikythera. Yeah, <laughs> where they found, they actually did a 3D model recently, mm. and they, they were able to see all the individual gears, and they were wow. like, it's insane. I mean, people were like, it's insane that they invented this, because f- for one, it's well-preserved for yeah. for a gear and it's like uh they're trying to see how the hell to me it's kind of funny because i'm like they used it they they proposed that they used it as a sort of calculator plus um, for like navigation or something well yeah for navigating the the it's also an astronomical thing i guess is yeah. what you mean by navigation yeah um so but they were also using it to help figure out their calendars or something like mm-hmm. that just from the 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 stones that were attached to it, they kind of tell what it was used for. They okay. say that it was used to kind of check their um, their calculations with mm-hmm. the the stars or whatever. <clears throat> I guess to kind of match their their um, their observed calculations. So in a, in gotcha. some ways, it was a rudimentary uh, computational device, mm-hmm. um, which is very complicated. 
It was just very complicated. Right, a system of gears and all yeah. this other stuff, super complicated, which kind of makes me think, like, why wasn't there much more of a commotion? Were these things, like, super know. common? Like, Probably not. I think they was only, like, they estimated that two were made or something. Damn, that's insane. So it's probably, insane. like, a little, like, side project. I think, it was it Archimedes or something? Or am I fucking that up? Maybe it's I not. Don't, know. don't Don't even quote me on any of this. I'll put an article up. Maybe it'll yeah. give more information on this. <laughs> But I, was, I believe it was one of the prominent people that you would recognize their name. They attribute yeah. it to the pet project for one of them. Yeah, or something like that. It was like, well, this is my computational methods. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's you can you can say that humanity's, you know, sati- What is that? We're we're insatiably. Like we need to confirm our little theories with computational methods. Right. Right. Yeah. Goes back to antiquity, Greek antiquity. Right. Um, well, anyway, the other thing that the other method that I wanted kind of to talk about were all these other ancillary ones mm-hmm. that you kind of brought to light. Yes. Yeah, so I guess the next one that I can have some confidence talking on mm-hmm. is the uh, is one that has to do with uh, curve fitting. So it is Lagrange interpolation, mm-hmm. and here's a good little video on it. So it's like, how do you um, fit curves, basically? Whether it's for the techniques that they do and this is a good video by dr will wood gotcha shout out dr will here we go suppose you want to approximate some function but you're only giving its value at a finite set of points we call nodes lagrange interpolation is able to produce a polynomial which goes through all the points It does this by first creating a set of polynomials, each associated with a particular node, and they're made in such a way that the first polynomial, L0, is equal to 1 at the first node and 0 at all the others. The second polynomial, L1, is equal to 1 at the second node and 0 at all the others. And this pattern continues for all these so-called Lagrange polynomials, because each Lagrange polynomial only contributes to its own node. We can then just multiply each one by the y value it should have and then add them all together. The resulting polynomial then goes through or interpolates all of the data points. So how do we find these Lagrange polynomials, the L sub i's? We want to construct a function L sub i of x, which is one at x equals x sub i and zero at all the other nodes x sub j where j is not equal to i. The easy bit is finding a polynomial equal to zero at the points we want it to be. Consider the polynomial y of x equals x minus a times x minus b times x minus c. We know this is zero when x is a, b or c, so let's use this idea to make our polynomial zero at the nodes. So let's say we have the nodes at x is equal to 0, 1, 2, and 3. We want L sub 1 to be 1 at the second node, 1. Sorry, that's confusing, but L sub 0 would relate to the first node, 0. Anyway, L sub 1 should be 0 at x equals 0, 2, and 3. So we'll guess our Lagrange polynomial will be something like L sub 1 star of x is equal to x minus 0 times x minus 2 times x minus 3. This absolutely does equal 0 at the right places. 
but we're not getting the right number at x is equal to 1. Remember, at x equals 1, l sub 1 star of x should equal to 1. So what does it equal? Well, if we plug in x equals 1, we get l sub 1 star equals 1 minus 0 times 1 minus 2 times 1 minus 3, which is 2. But actually, the bit underlined turns out to be the nicer form. Look, let our new guess be l sub 1 of x equals x minus 0 times x minus 2 times x minus 3 divided by 1 minus 0 times 1 minus 2 times 1 minus 3. And we've got it. I've removed the asterisk because this is in fact the correct formula. We have the polynomial on the numerator which makes l sub 1 0 at all the other nodes 0, 2 and 3 and we divide by that same polynomial evaluated at the node we want it to be equal to 1. So in general for a set of nodes x sub i for i equals 0 to n the ith Lagrange polynomial is the product from j equals 0 to n excluding j is equal to i of x minus x sub j over x sub i minus x sub j. Notice too that this is a polynomial of order n since there are n lots of x minus something multiplied together. I'll use this fact later on. And so for the nodes 0, 1, 2 and 3 these are the Lagrange polynomials. Given interpolation points Good. So, yeah. So basically that one's an interesting one because it's like um, it's, it's interpolation. So if you imagine you're given a data set that's just a bunch of points, and you're like, what the hell is this supposed to look like? Mm -hmm. And you kind of have an idea. You can use Lagrange interpolation, which actually forms a curve that fits through all of those points. Of course, you can kind of see some potential problems with this because you're like, okay, what about overfitting and all this stuff? Well, there's other interpolation techniques out there that seek to fix these issues. And then there's also curve fitting that's just kind of more of like it's finding an average using things like linear regression or mm -hmm. nonlinear regression, depending on the function. Mm -hmm. So those are some other examples, I guess, of uh, trying to fit data or interpolate data, which I thought was kind of interesting. And there's a bunch of different ones. I think there's another one that I have a video for called Vandermond. Um, I don't know if we'll watch it, but we'll see. Uh, and that one is similar in the sense of Lagrange that it actually takes a bunch of uh, get uh, it takes a bunch of known data data values and then puts those data values into a general polynomial and then forms a matrix and then you solve that matrix to find the actual uh, uh, weights associated with those with the polynomial. Fascinating. And, and then it and then it fits that as well, hmm. just like the Lagrange polynomial method, only just hmm. in a different way. Interesting. So yeah. I thought that was really interesting and useful because, I mean, you're always like, it's it's always something that where you're like, can I recreate this function just by looking at this data? Mm -hmm. And I mean, you do a lot of that in all types of science, not just physics, right? You're just, yeah. you know, we, you and I have spent time in the lab, like trying to fit data and put curves through origin, <laughs> you know, trying to see what curve matches up the nicest. Yeah. And sometimes you'll get these crazy looking number curves that just like these wild answers. Yeah. Um, like if you're lucky, you know, I, I, I mean, we both worked with semiconducting materials. So like 
you have like an omic response, which is a linear response. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's easy to fit curves to that. Right. You're just like <laughs> y equals mx plus b. Right. <laughs> but then when you start getting nonlinear, you get all these crazy oscillations and yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. Exactly. And you're like, is this e to the x? Is this polynomial? Like, what the fuck is this? And it starts to get a lot less clear. Yeah. You know, usually if you have an analytical um, function, you're trying to work towards that's a little easier but sometimes you don't even have that and you're just trying to figure out what that function even is yep so this is one of these techniques that lies within that realm of yeah. interpolation yeah interpolation is a funny one to kind of like think about because to me when i think of interpolation i always thought about how how like televisions interpolate yeah so like you know your modern tvs aren't really uh, interpolated anymore they don't interpolate images as much the okay. modern tvs are all progressive scan so mm. meaning that the frames are do they still interpolate actually i'm kind of wondering i thought the new ones do interpolate more because when i would play guitar here on the new tvs mm. it would say like oh can you like play along with it first mm. to you to calibrate the tv yeah and it would be all fucked up on the HD TVs. Right. And I think that's because they interpolate frames. With the right. old ones, I think they didn't interpolate frames. So it was easier to play Guitar Hero on those. Right. So you didn't have to calibrate as much. A good example of this is, you know, cathode ray tube TVs were progressive scanning, meaning that, like, when the electrons hit the cathode, well, the electrons from the cathode ray tubes would hit the screen. Yeah. It's pretty much like. There's no, how would you say, processing involved. That's a real yeah. image. It's just a straight up, that's what it is. Yeah, a real yeah. image. So, But in modern TVs, it's like liquid crystal display. So like each of those diodes display a certain color to create a whole mm -hmm. image. But the image itself, you, the TV has to integrate all that. I believe. Yeah, right? I'm not sure exactly how it's done, so I can't really speak with any authority, yeah, but I'm yeah. pretty sure they add frames on the HD ones. Yeah, which is why also if you remember a, it, they, they they flicker, right? They turn the they turn the TV, I mean on the, and the off. yeah, it's like the it's imperceptible to us, but yeah. um the TV does turn on and off like or the power Damn, how do I Something. say this? But the thing is, like, I, I'm pretty sure it's the HD TVs that do it mm -hmm. because I remember even the first time my parents got a really high-definition TV, there was this weird effect where I was used to seeing everything in 24 frames per second, and then it bumped up to, like, what was it, like 60 or 120 60, or something? yeah, 120. Um, when you would look at old shows and whatnot, they all looked like soap operas. Gotcha, yeah. And you're like, why does this look so off? Mm -hmm. It looks weird. Um and that was because we weren't used to seeing the frame rate like that. So even those old 24 hertz films and whatnot, they were bumped up to those higher frame rates, which is why they looked weird. Oh, they interpolated. They looked the... like soap operas because I think soap operas used a different frame rate than normal um, like cinema, cinematic frame rates. The mm -hmm. 24, I think, is the, mm -hmm. is the frames per second right. for that. So that's why. It's because it's interpolating those frames automatically. Right, so the TV, so in essence, they're basically the TV is trying to, um, what, what would you say? It's trying to smooth out the motion. Right, and we see this with, um, with like, uh, what is it called? The face mapping software stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what is it called? Um, fake. Augmented reality. Is it fake something? 
fake. It's like fake. Uh, they put fake faces. Oh, deep fake. Deep fakes. Yeah, thank yeah, you. yeah. Yeah, they interpolate people's faces on on that, or they graph people's faces on on something, and so that that does. It's also an iterative process because the yeah, computer I don't know if that's interpolation, though. Well, because, because the face has to. You have to kind of look at the oh. angles and the lighting, and it has to integrate that. Oh, so the maybe image. it does. So you're saying like from one frame to another, it has to add that smoothness, so yeah. it might add a frame in or something. It has okay. to integrate the the. It has to integrate all of that to to represent what a real face would look like, I or see. what it thinks a real face looks like. And that makes sense because <clears throat> it's like you're taking the average of those two images, mm-hmm. and then you get that next frame in between because it's mm-hmm. like that transition of that lighting. It looks more nat- unnatural sometimes if the lighting is too sh- if it changes too sharply, so yep. it has to interpolate by adding in that extra frame by compensating for the lighting and the angle of the face change. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I'm sure it probably does do that. You're probably right. Yeah, have you seen those really good deep fakes where it's like the interpolation methods are like they look fluid? Oh yeah, and the people look. Um, I've seen some scary ones. Yeah, You're like holy shit! Like that literally looks like the person with yeah. no. Like they find the perfect body type where the person has the same looking body and it's like the, the face has all the right lighting and everything mm-hmm. like those are really good. Yeah. And I mean, this is a technique that they're probably going to be using to develop that, that kind of software to, Oh yeah. To like, I mean, they've already kind of used it to bring back, um, Carrie Fisher in, um, in the in Star, Star Wars, Wars movies. Yeah. Um, and they do this with, um, I mean, they did this badly or comically bad, and the new Star Wars, uh, the Mandalorian. Spoiler alert! Um, no, they didn't use it then. They didn't use the deep fake. They used CGI for Luke. Oh, they okay. Thank you. That That's was what they should have done. They should have used fake. the deep fake because I saw the. You showed me the deep fake. Yeah, the deep gotcha. fake looks way better. That's mm-hmm. the fan made one. Mm-hmm. So uh, somebody, company, with... yeah, companies need to understand. I don't think they are aware of the technology because they spent all this time and money doing the CGI when. Sometimes the deep fake is actually easier, right? Because you're just putting the computer to actually do the work for you. Mm-hmm. Um, when they should have just done the deep fake and it actually captured a much better image. So I think it that would be what people start to migrate towards in the future for for cinema as well. Right, because CGI, for those of you folks that don't know, they, I mean, I think I did rudimentary CGI stuff in my uh-huh. in my high school, one of my okay. high school classes. <laughs> it was a whole semester project, but you had to do an animation sequence you have to animate every fucking oh like, yeah if it That's matches with yeah and so like sometimes you can do the face mapping stuff where yeah. you take real data and then map it onto the CGI yeah. and it like does that well, that's what, like, all the modern, like, Family Guy, American Dad, they do that where they have the 3D characters and then they just have, they just move those animated characters to do what they want. And mm-hmm. you can pump out episodes and things a lot quicker that way. Gotcha. Well, I w- I'm saying, like, for like that's like two dimensional but i'm saying like cgi characters yeah, like they're, 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 oh. they're, they have the illusion of being two dimensional oh but they're actually 3d modeled oh, like simpsons does the same thing oh cool you wouldn't realize but no. you they also look at a good example is look at um dragon ball fighter z mm-hmm. so dragon ball fighter z looks like a 2d game yeah but then you immediately see how good the 2d the 3d to 2d looks when you see those cut scenes because yeah. the cut scenes are actually three dimensional, but it's a mm-hmm. cur- it's a completely perfect transition because it's all really 2d. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, yeah, I'm I mean, saying it's all really 3d. My bad. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was saying that that, that is kind of something that the companies have to spend a lot of time meticulously or the artists have, a, have to spend a meticulous amount of time 
hand hand doing these animations and stuff. That's the old way, the yeah, brutal way. But I, Terrence is saying, with like for instance, like these interpolation methods with deep fakes, it's more of like you do, you know, some of them incorporate neural networks and to kind of see how humans' mouth, mm. the natural movements of people's mouths or eyes to convey emotion, that kind hmm. of thing. <clears throat> and then map it onto a face and see how, you know, what the, how to make things not look so uncanny. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that deep fake for, from Luke Skywalker's, yeah. entrance in the Mandalorian spoiler alert I'm gonna put a yeah they should have seen it by now yeah <laughs> let's get it, with the times it looks it looks it's comical whenever you put it side by side how bad it is the CGI versus yeah. the the deep fake looks so much better insane um, but yeah I think there's gonna be a lot more of that and I hope in the future it's gonna be just like a part of like just regular software packages where you could just have like Photoshop and it'll just be like oh you wanna take a picture and make this an animated picture you just click and you want to have a mad face or a sad face or a happy face and it will just be a click of the button you can manipulate people's photos even mm-hmm. i'm thinking that's what it's going to be because you already see it nowadays with those like goofy little um, animations where they'll they'll let any person sing even yeah and those are done real easy and by the way google does this really interesting thing that they've they're the soft they're this king of software but they do this uh, interesting thing when you take a photo, you can essentially delete the subject from the photo oh, via right. software. And then the software will fill in the landscape or the background. Yeah. Yeah. Insane. That's, cool. that's really cool. Because it looks seamless. Yeah. It looks, it's like, wow, how's it even possible? <laughs> but it's all neural network stuff. Yeah. And like interpolation and all that. Yeah. Neural networks are going to make things crazy, man. Yeah. So. I mean, I, th- I see a lot of good things in that future. So uh, there you have it. I think. Uh, do you have any other? Um, oh, we're at an hour. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any other methods that you kind of <sighs> well, wanted to give I a shout I out for? I got the one I wanted. Um, those are kind of. Yeah, I think I'm happy with that. I think I'm happy with it because the other ones I had, I'm a little bit less confident to speak on. Yeah, I mean, just a shout out to Chebyshev approximations. Yeah, I wanted to talk about Chebyshev for approximating functions because uh, it's related to the Taylor series, and it's a better version of approximating the Taylor series because I think it takes less computational time Mm -hmm. and it models functions more with less error. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's like, I just, I wanted to show, I guess, an optimized version of like, you would think like if you want to, if you want to compute like a function using Taylor series, that's like the kind of the first thought because it's a polynomial that could be broken down and computed easily, like on a calculator, let's say. And you can take less computations because you're not actually computing like all the values. Mm-hmm. But then the Chebyshev is an even better version of that. Interesting. Shout out to Vandermond. Yeah, Vandermond is related to the interpolation, like the Lagrange polynomial interpolation we just talked about. Mm-hmm. Vandermond is the kind of the conceptually simpler version in one of the first versions, I believe. Mm-hmm. And it shows it's 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 it uses matrix a matrix to actually find the um the weights of the function and then and then we have the uh the non-linear, uh, non-linear squares so i wanted to find non uh yeah non-linear least squares was a method for uh regression so it's like when you want to fit a function um non-linear regression is or non-linear least squares is a method to actually fitting a data 
uh, fitting a plot onto data where you can yeah. choose the degree in which you want to model it and then gotcha. you can actually fit that data to whatever you have. <clears throat> like, um, so it's, so the Vandermond and the, uh, Chebyshev? Uh, no, and the, um, one I talked about, the Lagrange, Lagrange polynomial method, they kind of assume that the data points you have are, are definitely going to be on your, your curve. Curve. Mm -hmm. Right, but you can see the problem with that because sometimes your data is fucked up when you get it in the lab. Like right. it could be off. You could have outliers. You can and have things. disjunctions and stuff. Right, so you want to have curve fitting as well that can like approximate curves because you can see a bunch of splotches on a graph and you could be like, oh, I see what that's supposed to be. But if you use the Lagrange or the Vandermann, then it might be like overfitting where you have this crazy looking curve yeah. of like degree like fifty or something. Right, right, right. <laughs> but this is like. The curve fitting is, for instance, is when you might not have completely reliable mm -hmm. data points. Right. And that's what you would use, like, nonlinearly squares for. If you have, like, an exponential function, let's say, where your your data is exponential, but you just need to fit a curve to all those exponential data points. Mm -hmm. And you yeah. know it's an e to the x function. You just don't know exactly what kind of e to the x function it is. True. And that's, well, then, that's there you that. have it. I mean, I mean, those are the analytical methods. I mean, the computational physics is also... Well, no, those are computational. Right, right, right. But I'm saying okay. there are also... Some people kind of put... Like, astrophysics has a lot of computational stuff, too. Okay. But it's more like... The models that they use are more... How would you say? Um, I don't know about the methods yeah. they use. They They probably have their own basket of... Yeah, that's kind of out of my wheelhouse. <laughs> Me too, I'm but pretty I, shitty at, at astronomy. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, know the only much. person that I know that does astrophysics computational stuff. Yeah, they they fit their own. They have their own kind of simulations. Yeah, and methods. And they can get wild, yeah. wild data points. I mean, they'll be like, <laughs> "Oh, my 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 answer is like eight hundred thousand plus or minus a million. <laughs> and that's a and that's considered a good answer, you know. Like, yeah. Think about like the Drake equation is a classic example, I guess. Right. It's like they're trying to Drake equation is for trying to figure out how many uh, sentient or no, I don't even know how many sentient, planets, like how uh, many uh, how, how stars many, or galaxies. It's it's supposed to be a computation to see how common is life, I believe, and the answers that you can get from that are just so wildly <laughs> different, right? Because it's all assuming these particular values that you have. Mm -hmm. It's like some. It's like some. Uh, multiplicative some multiplicative equation I believe mm -hmm. and then you multiply all those estimated values together and you can get all kinds of answers just based on your qualitative assumptions and sometimes astronomy could get like that that's yeah. probably a, a far out example because yeah. that's really unknown yeah but that's that's one example like for instance well I was going to say the simulation of like like how they f for integrating the image of a black hole Okay, because they did simulations for that, and I can't imagine the the kind of computational modeling that oh, that went right. into that. I can't even imagine. <laughs> oh right, because you have yeah. to put in those like those the system of equations for the the Ricci tensor stuff. Right, right. Oof, but at least those ugly. have analytical solutions. I think, mm -hmm. in I some see. sense, yeah, yeah, which is nicer. Yeah, um, I'm not sure, I'm, but I'm sure there's some chaotic parts to a black hole. You know, the Schwarzschild metric is a thing, and, right. you know, we do have Einstein's fields equations, so it should be, it should have some analyticity, <laughs> analy analyticity. how do you say yeah, it? I guess so, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, so uh, maybe it's not as bad as you'd think. Maybe if you're trying to recreate the one that there was on uh, Interstellar, it might be. Right, that's what I yeah. was thinking, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was some legit shit right there. But... Yeah, and if you've seen the Celestial movie uh, from Marvel's The Celestials, they have this like... Oh, the Eternals? Oh, sorry, the Eternals, yeah. 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 They have this, uh, spoiler alert, they have this image of this really cool sequence towards the end where you see a black hole. Mm. It's really cool. It's it's sweet. It's, it's kind of cool. Maybe I but, should watch it now. But I mean, just for the end sequence, <laughs> I don't know. It's I'll kind watch of, a whole movie just for a cool physics. Part. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really cool at the end. It's probably my favorite part of the movie. Pretty telling, yeah. isn't it? But well, you know, I liked uh, you know I liked X Men Apocalypse just for that one scene with uh, Quicksilver. Oh, I'll true. watch an entire movie just for one part that I like. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, it's really. I mean. It's just it's just really cool. The way it gives you a sense of scale is really really cool. Mm-hmm. I really appreciated it. But but anyway, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure. Um, I'm pretty sure. Hopefully, you have a good sense of what computational physics is. At the end of this, um, we're kind of giving you an as is thing. I, I mean, maybe. Do you, do we know any computational physics people? I know of a professor. Yeah, I'm trying to think, That's but it. I don't know. As opposed to students, I don't know. I can't really think of many. No, yeah. I don't know any student computational physicists. I mean, theorists use computational techniques, yeah. programming. Yeah, I know a guy, but he's he's in condensed matter, and mm. it's not really a marriage. It's like yeah, just yeah. A, a he user. hops on every now and then. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, mm-hmm. hopefully, you folks found this uh, elucidating or interesting. Yes, hopefully, yeah. the audio listeners did as well. True. I was a little bit concerned for them on this one, but I hope we kept it reasonable enough. Yeah. Well, anyways, don't forget to like, share, comment, subscribe. Check out iGameBros.com, iGameBros on Instagram, iGameBros on Twitter, iGameBros2 on TikTok, and then Patreon is patreon.com slash iGameBros. Thank you once again, patrons. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, if you guys want to check out me and one, uh, 30-minute audio podcast air every week, mm-hmm. $1, that's all it is. Yep. So check it out, guys. And with that, thank you. See you later. Adios. Bye-bye.